then you should be turning in your Bibles to uh, Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 11 through 24 today. So we continue in our study in the book of Galatians. Having been a Christian now for, you know, a, a number of years and, and a pastor for a while, I've heard a lot of testimonies, a lot of uh, stories as to how people have come to know Christ. And some of those testimonies are more spectacular than others. And by the way, it doesn't matter how, quote, spectacular your testimony is. The fact that Jesus Christ brought you back from the dead is really amazing. But I do want to talk a little bit about an individual who was particularly notorious in his former life. His name was Chuck, and he was called a hatchet man, and he had a brutal lust for power. In fact, Time magazine uh, described him as bloodthirsty, deceptive, and manipulative. And the people who knew him said those are his good qualities. In fact, he even once said that he would walk over his grandmother if she stood between um, him and his goals. He became preoccupied with hiding his sin. He became preoccupied with covering his tracks. He ended up in a very high-pressure job, very high-pressure assignments, and those high-pressure situations allowed him to uh, keep his mind from having to think about what it is he was really doing. But that all changed because on the evening, uh, on an evening in 1973, uh, the one-time presidential advisor, Chuck Colson, uh, heard the gospel from his friend, Tom Phillips. And he heard that Jesus Christ was the, was the necessary security that he'd been lacking and that he'd been seeking through political power and through manipulation all of his life. On that day, Chuck Colson was arrested by God and then came Watergate and he was arrested again. It became front page news and eventually uh, he was hauled off to the Alabama State Penitentiary, but that did not seem to matter because now he was a changed man. Now there was a peace about him. Now he was converted. And so you see, whether your conversion was, quote, spectacular like this or whether you were a good person, Good people without Christ are still without Christ. And so God gets a hold of us and does amazing things. And so as we come to Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, the church needs to hear this message. The church needs to hear this passage of text because, as we have here, it is the gospel that transforms us. It changes us. And it changes us both horizontally and vertically. That is, it changes our relationship with God horizontally. Or, I'm sorry, that's vertically. Changes our relationship with God. We were once enemies of God, and now we are friends of God. It changes that whole relationship. It also changes our relationship with others. Um, How we treat our fellow human being. How we love one another. And so... Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. In this, we will see a man who is radically changed. 
Not only is he changed in his relationship to the Lord, but he's changed in his relationship to others. And so we need to keep this in mind, that the the gospel transforms. And sometimes we talk about um, radical conversions. I would maintain that every conversion is radical because it takes us from a state of death to life. It takes us from the state of enmity with God to friendship with God. It takes us from a state of, of wrath to peace. So, let me just give you a little bit of idea. Let's review a little bit where we've been just in case um, you weren't here the past couple weeks or you didn't listen to it on the internet or you just forgot. I'm not sure how you could have forgotten those messages, but <laughs> but I'm going to review. The review is very simple. What Paul has been telling us is there is just one gospel. That's it. There is only one gospel. That is one good news. There is one way to salvation. There is no other way. Jesus said that. Paul says this. We see it even in the Hebrew scriptures. There is one way to, one way to salvation. There is only one gospel. And, and Paul even goes so far to say that this gospel... It is against this gospel that all other opinions of salvation are measured. Do you remember last week? He said, even if an angel from heaven or a a church leader comes and gives a different gospel, let them be accursed. And then he says, if anybody comes and preaches a different gospel, let them be accursed. So Paul is setting his gospel out there as the standard by which every other opinion is measured. That's a pretty bold claim. Paul makes a statement and he says, this is the truth. Everything else is measured against what I just told you. So let's kind of look forward by way of preview as to where I hope to go. That leads me to this question. What is the origin of of Paul's gospel that makes it normative? Paul has just said, the gospel that I preach to you is normative and everything else needs to be measured against it. Even if it comes from an angel from heaven, it needs to be measured against what I've preached to you. So then my question is, what is it about that gospel that Paul is preaching that makes it normative, that makes it the standard by which all other gospels are judged? Because we need to ask ourselves the question then, is Paul's gospel the product of his fertile imagination, which isn't such an unusual position. Many people hold the idea that Paul simply made up. In fact, there are many people who say that Paul invented Christianity. It wasn't Christ. That Paul pretty much came up with the ideas that we hold to be Christianity. So did Paul's gospel come from his fertile imagination? Did he actually invent Christianity? Some people say, well, you know, since he calls it my gospel, there must be other gospels like Peter has, you know, and let's face it, maybe it's a little, he says it a little differently than Peter or he says it a little differently than James. And after all, people would put forward that James and Paul um, spoke two different, two different things. They didn't, but people will put that out there. So where did Paul get his gospel? What, what makes it normative? Did it come from his own fertile imagination? Did it come from his desire to please men? After all, if you say, well, you know what? You don't have to do anything. You just need to believe. That's, uh, you might tend to attract a few people. 
Did it come to him from secondhand information? Did he just read it in a book somewhere and says, hey, that's a good idea. I think that's what I'm going to start teaching. Where did Paul's gospel come from? How did it become the norm by which all other words of salvation are measured, even if it came from an angel from heaven? So that's where I want to do where I want to go today. I want to discover then the source of the gospel, which Paul has proclaimed, which is normative by which every other means of salvation is measured. And if it does not meet with this particular standard, with the standard that Paul put forth, then it needs to be rejected. So I'm going to go ahead. Let's go ahead and read. I'm going to just read chapter one of Galatians. Here we go. Galatians chapter one. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God had set me apart, even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days, but I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. This is the word of God. So we, we first begin this, this message with trying to identify what is the gospel? What the gospel is, or at least the origin of Paul's gospel. And, and we don't need to spend a whole lot of time here because we've really already answered that question in the previous weeks. But let me just say this, that the gospel is God's gospel. It originates with God. Paul says, I preached it, but I didn't invent it. I didn't make it up. I proclaim it, but I am not the originator of what I preach. 
It was not a tradition that was passed down to me. I did not hear it from necessarily from my forefathers. I didn't read it in a book or any of those things. The gospel is God's gospel. The next thing we should discover is that the gospel is revealed. That is, one does not discover the gospel. One does not go off into a cave and meditate and hopefully um, make it up. The gospel is a revealed gospel. In fact, all of God's truth is revealed truth. Sometimes I feel like I'm repeating myself when I say that because I say it almost, I, I say it frequently. And that is that the word of God, that we know God because God has revealed himself to us, not because we ascended into heaven or that we went about seeking God and discovered him. God has revealed himself to us. We were lost by nature, children of wrath, and God stooped down and revealed himself to us by his mercy and by his grace. If you know Christ, it is because Christ has revealed himself to you, not because you intellectually or somehow discovered him. He discovered you and he pointed out that you were lost and opened the glories of heaven and revealed those to you. And so Paul's gospel, that is the gospel that was questioned by this group of antagonists called the Judaizers. This gospel that was abandoned by the Galatian was not an invention. It was not a hand-me-down. It was a revelation. In other words, Paul did not go to an evangelistic crusade in Smyrna or somewhere and hear a great preacher and say, that's it. He was not walking on the streets of Thessalonica and somebody handed him a track of the four spiritual laws. And then he took that and, and formulated a gospel message. No, the gospel was revealed to him by Jesus Christ. It is God's gospel, the gospel that a person is saved by grace through faith is not an invention of man. It is not an invention of Paul. He did not receive it from from his great education that he had at the feet of Rabbi Gamaliel. He got it through Christ who revealed himself. And so we asked ourselves the question, what the gospel is, and we have discovered that it is God's gospel. This is why it can be set as the standard by which all other gospels are measured. That's why we can set it as the standard that anybody who comes, whether an angel from heaven or a church leader or a so-called apostle, could come and say, this is the gospel. If it does not line up with, Paul, with what Paul has preached, Paul says, let him be accursed because the gospel I'm preaching to you, I did not invent. I did not make it up. I, I was given to me. It is God's gospel. It came straight and directly from the Lord himself. And so... We now have discovered what the gospel is, at least in this very brief section. I don't think we need to go into much more detail, do we? Because I can go. <laughs> I'll move along. Because I really want to enter into this idea, what does the gospel do? We, we've discovered what the gospel is. Now let's discover and look at what the gospel does. See, here's what Paul's going to do. Don't lose sight of the fact of Paul's rationale, his argument. What Paul is doing is, remember, people are saying, Paul, your gospel is crazy talk. Paul is preaching salvation by grace through faith alone. That is, it is by God's grace that a person is saved. But there is a group of people 
who are called the Judaizers, and they're coming in and they're saying that's not true at all. See, they're saying that you need to first be circumcised and follow the laws of Moses, then you can be saved. You can find that reference in Acts chapter 15, verse 1 and verse 24. So, and really throughout the scriptures, we see these Judaizers coming in and they're saying, no, the gospel, a person is not saved by grace through faith. They are saved by following the laws of Moses. In other words, you need to become a Jew first and then you can become a Christian. Then the promises of Abraham are available to you. And Paul's going to get into all of that much later in the book of Galatians. But Paul, in this introductory uh, chapter one, is saying, no, the gospel that a person is saved by grace through faith. And that alone, that you do not need to earn your salvation. You do not need to do something first and then get saved. You don't need to do a good work and then God will find pleasure with you. God saves you out of, out of your rebellion. God saves you. And so what Paul's going to do to prove that message, he's going to offer himself as the first line of evidence. So he's going to give a biographical piece of evidence to support his, to support his view. Later on, he'll get into a theological, uh, a theological proof. But right now, today, and probably uh, the next time, we, we enter in the book of Galatians. Paul is going to enter in as proof that his gospel is, and his message is true. He's going to offer himself as the per- first piece of evidence. You with me on that? All right. Remember what he's doing. He's not just giving us a biography for the sake of biography. He's giving us a biography to demonstrate that his gospel is actually from God and not from himself. And therefore, it needs to be believed. And so... The way Paul goes about this is, first of all, he begins to describe, this is who I was. I'm Paul, and I'm gonna, I want to show you that the gospel that, that I am preaching is valid, and it is the basis by which we judge all other gospels. And in order to do that, let me tell you about who I was. So let's talk about who was Paul. Well, we find out that Paul was a zealous persecutor of the church, that he was a savage persecutor of the church. He went from house to house and he sought to destroy the church. Let's look at this passage in Acts chapter eight, verse three. Here we go. So, but Saul, which, whose name became Paul, began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and he would put them into prison. So Paul, by savage, savagely, ravaged the church and entered into people's homes and dragged them off and put them into prison. Not just men, men and women. So this is who Paul was. Let's look at uh, the next verse in Acts chapter 26, verse 10. He says, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. So here's Paul. I not only put people in prison, but I made sure they were executed. So this is who Paul was. So remember, Paul's putting out his life as evidence of the gospel of grace that saves. And I just want you to know, this is who I was. I went church to church. I went house to house. And I took people. I put them into prison. And then once they're in prison, I lobbied for their death. So this is who who Paul was. Paul goes on and says that I was 
zealous for the traditions of my of my heritage. He says, you've heard about my manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church. And I was advancing in Judaism uh, beyond my count, my contemporaries and above uh, Beyond my countrymen, being more zealous for my ancestral traditions. So Paul was zealous for the traditions that his forefathers held. And by the way, Paul, I believe, was acting as though, was acting in a way that he believed was God-pleasing. That these people who held that Jesus was the Messiah were heretics and needed to be put to death. And so he's acting in what he believes to be compliance with the the traditions of his ancestors and his forefathers, and he is putting to death individuals who held that Jesus was the Messiah. This is who Paul was. And again, he believes that he is acting in a manner that is God-pleasing. I just want to stop and note that until God opens our eyes, we are all spiritually blind. We may even think that the things we are doing is God-pleasing. When you look around our culture today, many people will say, well, this is God-pleasing. When we, we, we look at ISIS and they would tell you that what they're doing is God-pleasing. Because we are blind until we open our eyes and we see all sorts of, um, all sorts of actions that are contrary to Scripture, and yet because the people are blind, they think, no, this would be pleasing to God. And the reason being is because they are blind. They are spiritually blind. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, and in Romans 8, 7, that until God opens our eyes, that the carnal man cannot receive things of the Spirit because he's not even able to understand them. He can't understand them. He's not even able to understand them. And this is where Paul was. Unable to understand the things of God. That's an amazing thing. A rabbi trained in the school of one of the brightest, most well-renowned rabbis, Gamaliel, and Paul is blind to the truth of God. You should note that Paul was not seeking God. He was the... This is... This description of a guy who goes around from house to house savagely imprisoning and, and casting his vote that people be murdered... He was at the death of Stephen and made sure that everybody who was killing Stephen was comfortable. He held their coats. This is not a man whose mind is easily changed. This is not a guy who you could just perhaps give a tract to and say, here, read this, and that he's going to be changed. This is going to take a supernatural work. If a guy like this is going to change, something big has got to happen. You are not going to reason him into the kingdom. Your logical presentation of the gospel will not have an effect on a hardened soul like this. This is going to take something bigger. I'm not saying that people shouldn't reason with him or that the gospel shouldn't be presented. I'm saying that if a man like this is to be converted, it is going to be a supernatural work. God may use the means of you reasoning with him, but understand it is a supernatural work that is going to change a man like this. Paul was not a seeker. And so that's who Paul was. Then we learn about what, who Paul became. And I love this, this verse. But when God... I was persecuting, I was killing, I was imprisoning, but when God... 
Something big happened. But when God got a hold of me, that is something, actually more, more precisely, someone altered his course. But when God, who set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace... I'm going to pause here. There's so much there that we can go into. And a few weeks ago, we talked about what I mean, what I think Paul is talking about by calling. It is the effectual call that actually results in justification. But let's talk about this. But when God, who called me from my mother's womb. Boy, if you've been reading through your Bibles, you certainly, does that remind you of any Old Testament incident? Anybody? Hmm? Okay, yeah. Jacob. Well, that doesn't remind you of Jacob, who was called. Remember Esau and Jacob, twins in their mother's womb. And in the mother's womb, God called Jacob before they had done anything good or bad. God called Jacob. It also reminds me of Jeremiah the prophet. Before you were born, I called you Jeremiah. Before you were even, when you were in your mother's womb, I set you apart for a task. I think Paul is going back and, and, and uh, kind of hinting at this idea of this kind of this prophetic call. Paul was set apart from his mother's womb. But when God, this is who I was, this is who I became, and I want you to understand this. This happened before I'd done anything good or bad, before I'd ever made a decision, before I'd ever sought God, before I'd done anything. And so here we come to recognize that calling, that is the calling that brings about justification, does not arise from human effort. It does not arise from human merit. It does not come about because Paul was seeking God. In fact, Paul was fighting God. Paul did not ask for mercy, nor did Paul deserve mercy, but God gave him mercy. This is grace. And probably every single one of you were in the same boat, whether you were a good person or a not-so-good person, whether you were like Chuck Colson or whether you were like somebody else who lived a nice life and, you know, you obeyed the rules and you went to school and you got straight A's and... you. All of those things. You were fighting God. And then, but when God, who called you from your mother's womb, got a hold of you, he changed you and justified you, declared you not guilty, and called you his child. He called you his son and his daughter. This happened um, according to God's gracious mercies. Our calling is by grace. When I became a Christian, I was not seeking God. I didn't really care. I liked my life. I was happy with my life. And then, one day, that all changed. It was not because I was down and out or anything like that. Going about, doing my thing, thinking everything I was doing was just fine. But when God got a hold of me, that all changed. And so we also see then that God called Paul by his own good pleasure. That's an amazing thing. Paul, the one who was actually despising God in his persecution. In fact, when, when he got knocked on his keister in, on his way to Damascus, 
Jesus himself said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's what Paul was doing. And yet it was God's good pleasure to, pleasure to save him. That's an amazing thing, folks. That's grace. Paul, a hater of God by his actions, by persecuting the Son of God and persecuting and killing the very followers of the Son of God. And I would assume, had he been in a place of authority, would have given hearty approval to the crucifixion of the Son of God. That's the Paul who God found pleasure in and saved him and knocked him off his horse and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This was by God's good pleasure. Paul was a persecutor, and yet it pleased God to make him a preacher. Isn't that an awesome thought? Again, that's grace. And so, God called me by His grace, and He was well pleased to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. You will notice there was a purpose in God's calling of Paul. It was not just to save him, but it was so that Paul would preach the gospel among the Gentiles. This is an, um, uh, an amazing thing here, that Paul would preach the gospel among the Gentiles. First of all, Paul was a good Jew. Jews and Gentiles despised one another. Paul says, no, I was called to preach the gospel to people who formerly I would have despised, but now I love them. First, so we learn a couple of things. Number one, Paul was called to do something, and so were you. When God transformed you and made you a new creation, he did not just do it so that you could spectate. He called you to glorify his holy name. I don't know exactly how. I can't speak to every single one of you how that is going to work out specifically, but I will tell you this, that God has called you in some manner to glorify his wonderful name. Whether it's preaching to a group of people that you formerly despised, as Paul did, or whether it's greeting people at the church door, raising your family in accordance with the gospel principles, all of these things. But God did not call you just to sit around and languish in that. He called you for a purpose. And I think it's amazing that we see Paul going to the Gentiles whom he would have normally and formerly um, been at enmity with. We had a guy who went to church here a long time ago. He had this amazing ministry down to border towns uh, just across uh, in Mexico. And he would tell a miracle after miracle after miracle that would happen. He said, here's the amazing thing. Not only before I was a Christian, but even sometime after a Christian, I despised Mexicans. I was a racist, bigot, hater. I hated them, hated them. Any way to express my hate, I would have. And now, God's got a hold of me. I love these people so much. I just can't wait to be with them. These are my people. I just can't wait. I've learned their language. I want to minister to them. I want to serve them. I want to raise them up. I want them to see the glory of Christ. I want to be with them for eternity in heaven. Folks, 
That's the gospel. That's what the gospel does. It changes people. It changes us from hating a particular group to loving that particular group. This is what the gospel does. It takes us from being haters of God to lovers of God. That is our our vertical relationships are affected, but so are our horizontal relationships. Because folks, you know as well as I do that every tribe, tongue, and nation will be present before the throne of Christ for eternity. And so Paul now becomes a lover of God's people. I do want to point out, uh, just for all you grammar geeks out there, a very interesting thing. And, and I, would, I would ask you to pay attention. There, there, there's a, there's a, an application here. But I want you to know in verses 13 and 14, when Paul is talking about his sin, it is my sin. I did this. I did that. When he starts talking about grace, it's God did this. God did that. Do you see that? Folks, when you're reading your Bible, pay attention to subjects, the subject. Pay attention to how the subject might change. Pay attention to pronouns because Paul is saying, when it comes to sin, I'm the sinner. Totally responsible. It was me, not my parents. It's not God's fault. I was doing this. And when it comes to grace, it is all God. We sung in a song earlier, Mine, mine the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. When it comes to transgression, it is all mine. And when it comes to grace, it is all God. And that is so clear here. And it's easy to miss it. But well, folks, when you're studying your Bible, be, pay attention to how subjects change. Because, oh, there's a, there's a beauty there. And ultimately, Paul becomes a new creation because in Christ, that's what he does. So Paul, again, now what is he doing? He's offering himself. He's saying, my message is not my message. My message is a divine message. Let me offer myself as proof as to where my gospel comes from. My, my gospel comes from God. Let me give you some evidence. Here's where I was. Here's who I am. I didn't seek this change. I didn't pursue this change. God himself changed me. This took some a divine action for this to happen. Otherwise, I would not have. I would not be who I am today. So Paul begins his uh, discussion or his defense of his gospel by offering himself as evidence that a divine change happened. And then he goes on and he talks about how he knew Christ privately first um, and then began to proclaim him publicly. Again, he's offering evidence of the divine origin of his message. Uh, his goal isn't just to tell us his travel plans or to inform us of, of, of his testimony in Christ. He is trying to show that his gospel is, has divine origin. And then he, so he goes on in verse, one of those verses. Verse 17, uh, verse, the last part of verse 16. To reveal a son of me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. So Paul didn't immediately go and consult with church leaders. In fact, we know that very soon after Paul was converted that he spent time in Damascus preaching the gospel. You'll see that in Acts chapter 9, verse 20. And he kept preaching that Jesus is the Messiah and proving uh, through the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. This was Paul. Paul very early on began to preach his message. So what we, what we learn is that very early on, Paul had already formulated the gospel that he preaches. 
He did not get it from the church leaders. Because we know very early on, this is what he was preaching. And then he says, I went away to Arabia. Now, here's the thing that Bible students really struggle with. We don't know anything about his trip to Arabia. In fact, the borders of Arabia are very nebulous and very fluid. And so we really don't even know what he means by Arabia. It could, Arabia, the boundaries could have been very close to Damascus, so maybe he traveled just a short distance away from Damascus. Or, as some people have put, he went all the way down to Mount Sinai. All of those places could have been Arabia. We don't know how long he was there for. Well, kind of. We know it was under three years. But it might have been a week. might have been a month. And we have no idea what he went away to Arabia for. We can only guess, and I'll give you my guess. My guess is that he went away for solitude, and he began to put together through the Old Testament and began to formulate what it is he was going to teach. That's just my guess. But the Bible says, and Paul just says, I went away to Arabia, and then I returned back to Damascus. That's all we know. And then, three years later, and let me just state this, the gra- this will be important uh, in two weeks also. The grammar here would th- then after three years, that then refers to his conversion. So three years after his conversion, not three years after going to Arabia, three years after his conversion, he goes down to Jerusalem and he ends up meeting with Peter and James. And you can read about this in Acts chapter nine, verse 26. But here's the thing. Paul's gospel is fully formulated by this time. He simply goes down and he, and he meets three years after his conversion, after preaching in Damascus, after having a fully formulated gospel. Then he goes down to Jerusalem and then he begins to, uh, then he meets with Peter and with James. I'm sure that when he met with Peter, I, I'm sure he learned a lot about Christ. I mean, certainly Peter... Certainly Paul would have wanted to know, hey, Peter, what was that like? I mean, you saw him face to face. I'm sure he would have wanted to know, really, you got out of that boat in the storm? And then what happened? (laughs) Peter, did you keep walking? Was it cool walking on water? What was that like? Well, let me tell you, Paul, didn't quite go how I thought it would go. Still amazing. I'm still the only guy other than Jesus to do that. I got a few steps in. Nobody else has gotten as far as I got. Still really cool. Peter, what was it like? You were, I heard you were on this mountain and, and Elijah and Moses show up to you. What happened? Well, I opened my big mouth, but it was really cool. I mean, Peter's probably got all kinds of great stories. And I'm sure Paul gleaned from them, but he didn't get his gospel from those stories. They may have affirmed his gospel, but they did not inaugurate or create his gospel. And so here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying this. My first visit to Jerusalem was three years after my conversion. It only lasted two weeks and I only saw two of the apostles. So it would be far fetched to conclude that I obtained my gospel from the Jerusalem apostles. That's just impossible. That didn't happen. Because I'd already been preaching my gospel. I simply went down there after three years and I only met with two of the apostles. So for you to think that somehow I got my gospel from somebody else is far-fetched. Do you see Paul's reasoning there? And then we see that Paul um, 
a little bit about what Paul does, and then he goes off to some other areas where he is preaching Christ, and people are amazed. They see that this man has turned 180 degrees. They're saying, isn't this the guy who used to persecute us? And now he's preaching the gospel that he used to condemn? This is an amazing thing. And they began to glorify God in me. Folks, I pray that God is being glorified in us because of who we are now in Christ. The one who was a destroyer is now a proclaimer. This was an obvious work of God. Nobody could deny that. I'll conclude here. Ultimately, the gospel transforms. The gospel is a transformative word. And if you are a believer, then you have been transformed by the gospel. The question now is, is that evident? Is that transformation evident? Are people glorifying God because of you? I'm not here to put pressure on you or anything like that. Or say, I'm just saying, are you living out the gospel that has changed your life? If so, how is God being glorified? How is God being glorified in your... The, the gospel that changed Paul continues to change us. It continues to change lives. You were changed by the gospel. I was changed by the gospel. Your unbelieving friends and neighbors have yet to be changed by the gospel. When they do, their lives will be changed. It is the gospel that changes lives. And God has set you apart, called you from before you were born. He called you and he set you apart and he set you apart for that purpose, for a purpose. If you're not sure what that is, I would simply begin by being obedient. Spend time in prayer. Spend time reading God's word. Spend time amongst God's people. When you see something, an opportunity that might interest you, go for it. You'll be amazed how God leads you. But God did not call, call you so that you can sit on Sunday morning in a pew and that be the totality of your Christian life. I hope that you come and sit on a pew on Sunday mornings. And I'm glad you're here. But if this is the totality of your Christian life, we need to talk. Because God has called you by his gospel to glorify his holy name. 